This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Jesus, take your place. Father, let your light shine and break forth across our generation, across our time. Jesus, reveal yourself to this generation like never before. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Praise God. Hallelujah. Right, church, have your seat. Thank you for coming to church. How are you, how are you doing? It's good to see your faces. It's good to see you. It's always, I'm always happy to see you. Hallelujah. Praise God. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's good to see you in church today. You look good. You look beautiful. You look handsome. Praise God. Hallelujah. All right. So, today I'm teaching about um, a sense that um, this message is going to spill over to next Sunday. So, I'll, instead of rushing it, I'll just take my time. Because I have a lot of things to say. And a lot of things I'm excited to see, to talk about. Praise God. Um, and the title of this teaching is uh, Becoming Generous. Hallelujah. Becoming Generous. is a teaching on Christian giving and what you need to understand, what you need to know in God's word that will make you become a generous person. Hallelujah. That will make you someone that is eager to give. That will make you someone that is spontaneous to give. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. The subject of giving in particular, in particular, has, um, has a lot of um, issues. Praise God. A lot of issues with the, issue, with the topic of Christian giving in particular. People tend to... Um, the topic of giving is one that is interesting and from, you know, being raised in a Pentecostal um, prosperity gospel background and you know trying to grow up to understand these topics better there's one thing that you would observe first of all is the fact that the giving topic is a is a is a is a topic of strong resentment is a is a topic that um, engenders a lot of resentment towards the church praise god is a topic that engenders a lot of resentment towards the church. It makes a lot of people angry with the church. It makes a lot of people to be bitter um, about the church. It's a, it's a topic that the enemies of Christianity often love to use to um, ethically or morally discredit the church. Hallelujah. And um, obviously it's because, you know, volition directs intellection. So because their will is already in opposition towards the church, it makes them to interpret everything that is done and said in the church from a, with a negative lens. Hallelujah. Church, all together. Did you get that? It makes everything that is done and said about giving in church to be interpreted negative lens. So everybody's always talking about how pastors are rich and all that and all that, you know, and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, we'll say a lot of things that will touch on these matters. Hallelujah. And you know, recently I got to know that that criticism is not one that is actually limited to um, 
Pentecostal churches or prosperity gospel churches. It's just louder on Pentecostal churches, but what I got to know from church history since the fifth century down, it's something that people that don't like the church have always criticized the church, both inside and outside, both within the church, both those in the church that love the church and those outside of the church that hate the church. They've always had that criticism, criticized the Catholic church for, you know, getting rich, where people are getting poor, the Orthodox churches. No church has been spared that criticism, right? You know, that's one side of it. The other part of it is the fact that um, even within the church, when teaching is taught, when generosity is taught, when giving charity, paying of tithes, and I say giving of, yes, paying of tithes, let's just use that word first. Giving of tithes, paying of tithes, giving of offerings. When those things are being taught from inside the church, there's also a um, historical trend of it not being taught properly in accordance to God's word because of the bias and the sentiment of, you know, the fear of people not giving as they should. You recognize there's need in the church, and so in order to encourage people to give, you will now say, talk about giving and teach giving in certain ways that are not, you know, exactly scriptural. And that trend is more obvious, you know, in, we, in African Pentecostal settings, a lot of people will come up to say that they are exegeting on the topic of giving, and at the end of the day, there'll be a lot of flaws. Why? Because there's a lot of um, bias that skews the teaching in a particular way. Praise God. And the truth is that the topic of giving is actually not that deep. There's no need for any minister to ever be worried or to be afraid that um, if, they give, if they teach giving in a certain way, people will stop giving. That, that's not a problem. We'll look at it, right? So the topic of giving is one that is, in, is very, very important. And it's even more important because, I might not get that today, but I'll probably get it next Sunday. Giving itself is a solution to a lot of, let me use the word spiritual decay that people are suffering. I'll get there next Sunday. Giving is actually a gift. It's one of those things that God has actually given us to protect us from the decay that comes from wealth. Giving is actually a gift that can protect your heart and protect your soul from the dangers of materialism and the subsequent nihilism that follows. Talk about it next Sunday. Giving is actually a very important issue. This issue of generosity is a very important issue. So I want to take my time and speak about it, teach about it, and you know, preach about it so that people can really understand it. I trust that anybody that pays attention and follows with us will understand Christian giving properly. And you'll always be able to defend it wherever you go. Hallelujah. It will also make you someone that is eager to be generous. Many times when people are when people have problems with giving. Is always out of a certain fear. A fear of not having enough, a fear of your needs not being met, and all those kinds of things. You'll see. All those things will be dispelled, and it will be easy for you to give. Hallelujah. Praise God. So let me give you a brief outline of what I'll be teaching so that you can have an idea of how this is going to go. I'm going to talk about the motivations behind people's givings that we see from scriptures and which corresponds to what we see in real life. Right? 
the, the kind of motivations that people usually have for giving. We'll look at it, right? Then we're going to look at the, we're going to do a cross-sectional contextual study, analysis of tithes and offerings. We're going to look at the Abrahamic tithing, the Deuteronomical tithing, and um, New Testament tithing. That is after the second, second temple, the context of those tithing and the way it was done. Look at New Testament tithing. What does it look like? Praise God. We're going to look at the differences between them. We're going to look at who giving has always been for. Who are we giving to? Historically, through all the trends. Because one of the problems that causes these exegetical errors is that <laughs> because people are so fixed on the way the church is now and how they want to raise money for the church, they will copy and paste the way church is now on all the historical tithing and try to use those times to justify tithing now. Do you understand that? And so it causes this anachronism that doesn't make sense. Where we are trying to beg people to tithe because of something that does not fit. Praise God. Hallelujah. So we'll look at how tithing and offering in those different times, who it was meant to be for, how it was given and all that. Praise God. Church, out together. We're going to look at, so in looking at who tithing and offering is for, we're going to compare administration versus charity. Religious administration or church administration or temple administration versus charity to the needy. Where the line is drawn historically and where we should draw the line now. Church, all together. Then, we're going to look at what the reward for giving is. What, what do we reap when we sow? We'll look at it. Also, throughout the scriptures. When you sow, what exactly are you reaping? Right? Praise God. And then we're going to talk about some other things about giving and um, the spiritual import of giving, how giving and all those things, the spiritual value of giving to the soul of a man. Hallelujah. So you're going to have a good time. Are you ready? Praise God. All right, so let's start. So the two reasons why people generally give, the two motivations behind people usually give is that, first of all, Giving is actually a manifestation of a state of heart whereby there is honor and love. When you honor some, something or somebody, when you love something or somebody, your spontaneous reaction to that thing or that entity, that person or that thing, is to give towards them. Church all together. When you love and honor someone or something, you give towards them. There is a, let me use the word spiritual. There is a spiritual aspect to money in the sense that money is something that we have created as a tool to represent value. Like we talked about in teaching on money. Do you guys remember? Money is something that we created to, to represent value. We need a universally agreed medium that is durable, that is portable. Portable means you can carry it around. We need a, a means that we can carry around that all of us agree on, that's you know, universal, something that we can use to represent value. So that when a person is creating value in a place, we in the society that appreciate the value he's creating, we can 
exchange our own value that we are creating for the value that he's creating. Do you understand that? So if you are doing something valuable like for this, you know, you are doing something with your talents or your skills or based on your geography, you are generating some kind of value like, let's say, clothing materials. And I am generating value like food. I need clothes. You need food. So we exchange. But that cannot always work. By the time we get to a complex society where there are literally millions of different values being created, we cannot, millions of us cannot start exchanging among ourselves. I will exchange your money for your food. You will now give her clothes. The clothes you now give her, she will collect change from your hand. Then you will give her a microphone and let you can't do that. So what we now do is that we now create something that will represent all our value based on how much we value it. That thing is what we now use to exchange. Do you understand that? Now, why am I talking about all that? Why am I talking about all that? Now, there's something that human beings do. When you notice value somewhere, your, your response towards it is to sacrifice something in order to receive that value. You sacrifice something which is a demonstration of how much emphasis or how much value you create on that thing. That's why you cannot be angry when one person earns more money than another person based on how the society values them. You can be here getting angry that um, women are dressing naked on TV and they're getting billions of dollars. They will inflate their bum bum, inflate their lips and be staying on TV during a reality show and they become billionaires. And you are angry that what's me of that nonsense? No, no, no. How can she go? You, you see, he cannot be getting angry. Do you know why? The reason why she's getting rich or they are getting rich is because there are many people that value her bonbon. And they are responding to that value by giving towards it. So by the time millions of you are giving to $2, $33, and everything enters her pocket, how much does it turn to? Billions. You know, so you cannot be angry. Do me, I do you. God no go vex. Because that's how human beings do. So, in the same vein, when people honor something and people see something, they respond to that honor by giving. That is why it is universal in every religious system. Adherence to that religion that pay emphasis or value the leaders or the coordinates of that religion always give towards that religion. Do you understand that? So, this idea of pastors are rich because people are giving to them is a useless criticism, is a meaningless criticism. It is, it is inadvertent. If millions of people honor a man for what he's saying and all of them give towards him, what will happen to him? You can't be angry. If he's paining you, go and do, go and do it. Do it if he's easy. Praise God. Do you understand that? What does that tell us? That tells us that this thing has a lot of implications for church. And dealing with people and looking at people. The amount of value that someone places on you, on a ministry, or what is going on in the place, always corresponds, it correlates with the way they give based on what they have. These are some of the things that the elders did and noticed that if you are looking at them, if you are misjudging them uncharitably, if you want to judge them uncharitably and you want to judge them harshly, you will misinterpret their actions as materialism. But it is not. When elders of old will seem like they are favoring certain people that are giving more to the church. Now, there are some cases where that is purely materialism. So, don't get me wrong. There are some cases where it is pure materialism. But there are some cases where it is not. Do you know why? 
You can tell those that value the ministry by how they give. You can always tell. You can. You can even tell when a person has started backsliding by the way they give. You can tell when the person is not happy with you by the way they give. You can tell a lot of things because giving is one of those things that comes from the place of where the heart is. Do you understand that? Let me show you. Deuteronomy chapter 14. This is one of the core teachings on tithing that we'll still go back to. But let me just read that part for you so that you can um, see. This is one of the places, one of, this is one of the Deuteronomical treatises on, um, on, on tithing. And you know, Moses is saying something here. And look what it says in verse 23. Let me just read about verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So, even from the Deuteronomical tithing, Moses begins to say something. He begins to say that, see, you guys should do tithing. Don't, don't worry. I will we'll explain everything about this tithing. Let's just, just follow. He says that, see, the way you tithe is actually a way that helps you to learn how to honor God. Because honor and reverence is tied to your giving. Your honor and your reverence corresponds to your giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8 from verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God had given, has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So this was a very poor church. This was a church that was very poor, yet it welled up in extreme in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Do you see that? A people that had given themselves to God, a people that love God and have given themselves to God and given themselves to the apostles, their response was that they were looking for an opportunity. They considered it a privilege to give. They considered it a privilege to give. That's why many of you, when you are going to see a big man, you go with gifts. It's not as if the big man does not have money already. It's not as if the big man does not have more than enough. But that's your, that gift you are taking is the response of your own heart, is a manifestation of the posture of your heart towards that person. Church, do you get what I'm saying? Are we together? So, they had given themselves to God and to the apostles, and because of that, they asked that, you know, the apostles, they considered a privilege to share in their gift. So that even when they were poor, they were still willing to give. So, poverty is not the reason why people don't give. You know what I said now? 
Are you sure? Poverty is not the reason why a person is not giving. Poverty is not the reason why a person is not giving. Dishonor is the reason why a person is not giving. Hallelujah. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 19. Let's just read Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your consent for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. But I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content at whatever the circumstances, and on and on and on. You know, he's talking about where he gave them. Praise God. But look at what he says in verse 10. He says, you renewed your concern for, your concern for me. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So the Philippians, the people that Apostle Paul, you know, greatly praised for their giving towards his ministry, where did they start from? He said, your concern for me. In case you didn't know, Philippians are the Macedonians. Do you understand that? Philippi is the capital of Macedon, of Macedonia. You know Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. The city was named after him. That's the city called Philippi. And, you know, he was the king of Macedonia and then conquered Greece, conquered the Mediterranean, and then that's his son, Alexander. Do you understand that? So when he was saying that, when he was telling the Corinthian church about the great um, giving of the Macedonian church, you see, you see how he follows. He was talking about these people and how much they've given. Hallelujah. Why did the Macedonian church that they're talking about give? He said, because they had great concern for me. Hallelujah. So when people, you know, people give out of honor. People give out of love. But there's another reason why people give sometimes. Sometimes, people's giving is a manifestation of hypocrisy, self-righteousness, opportunism, greed. Sometimes, when people give, it's actually a manifestation of hypocrisy. And you can always tell. Sometimes, people's giving is a, is a sign of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. It's a sign of a sense of superiority. It's a sign of an, a, a desire to... It's, it's an, an opportunistic thing for them. They are using it as an opportunity to make or to get something back from people. It can be for evil reasons, so to speak. Church, all together. And those reasons where people give, can be, you can tell. Do you know the way you tell? Do you know how you tell? It's very simple. The, the way they give will never be consistent with the other parts of their character. The way they give is never consistent with the other parts of their character. So when you see someone that is willing to give to the pastor, hmm? but when there is a need in the church, he's not willing to give. Or you see some people, they are willing to give to the church, but their parents are at home, and they don't give to their parents. They have relatives that are very poor, that have needs, but they don't give to them. People that their children can't, are not doing well, their children need stuff in school. Their children are not getting good education. Their children have needs, but they don't give them. But they carry all their money and give towards the church. Yes. That giving is not a spiritual giving. It's not generosity. It's not as if they are generous. There's something else there. There's self-righteousness to show to people 
that I am a giver. That kind of culture is encouraged in a church where people's giving is announced. There is an accountability perspective to giving, whereby if you are part of a local assembly, you should be accountable in your giving. Do you understand? But you can overdo it. Whereby your accountability will go from holding people accountable and expecting them to give. Like what I mean is this. As your pastor, if you are loyal to the church, if you are loyal to the church, as a, as a, as a pastor, your, a pastor should be able to call you and say, you have not been giving. Why? Don't worry, you understand why I mean that. You understand why giving is deeply spiritual. And a pastor that does not talk, talk about giving is not doing anybody a favor. He's not doing those people a favor. So from that accountability perspective, your priest, your pastor, whoever your pastor is, whichever denomination you belong to, can call you and say, you don't used to give. It is not good for you. But you can go overboard in that mentality and begin to psychologically and socially reward people for giving. So when you announce and say, this person gave us something, something, let's clap for him and all that, you begin to stir up a culture of giving for self-righteousness sake. You begin to stir up a culture of giving for the sake of attention. You begin to stir up a culture of giving out of hypocrisy. Church, all together. You see some people. When a recognized face or a recognized face in their family or in their society is around or something has to do with them, they will give. They say, yeah, thank you very much. See how it's okay. But the things that they are supposed to be doing, people that they are responsible for, they won't give. And the same way, you see someone, people that are willing to spend on their children, they will take all their money and spend on their, they say they are in a local church, and they spend on their children. Their children want to, uh, want every kind of thing they will buy for their children. They are extremely, seem to be generous to their children, but they cannot give towards the work of the gospel. They are not generous. They are selfish. Because it's about their children. Do you understand that? Generosity is a heart that is not selective. Generosity is a heart that is not selective. Generosity is a heart that responds to needs wherever it sees it. Shall I say it again for you? Generosity is not a heart that is selective. It is a heart that responds to needs wherever it sees it. So you cannot say, I'm responsive to the needs of my family, but you believe in the gospel and you don't respond to needs in the gospel. It's a lie. You cannot say you respond to the needs of the gospel, but your family, they can go to hell. You are not generous. You are self-righteous. Let me show you. Luke chapter 11. Verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal. That's ablution. In Jewish culture, you do ablution before you eat. And then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You are asking me to wash my hand. 
Who washing hand help? When inside you is dirty, do you understand that? You did wash hand. Which hand are you washing? When inside you, you are terrible. See, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So he says, see, you are dirty inside because you guys will ignore the poor. You are not generous to the poor. And you are dirty inside. Look at now in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees because you give a tenth of your mint, your rule, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. You see, so let me say at this point, people that will say Jesus did not teach tithing is a lie. Did you hear what I said now? Have you heard what I said now? Who that said Jesus did not preach tithing is a lie. Jesus said, you should have practiced generosity to the poor while practicing your tithes. So let me read it again. Verse 42. The second part. It says you should have practiced the latter, the latter meaning tithing, without leaving the former undone. You should have tithed without, dis- them, without forgetting the poor. You should have tithed without forgetting the poor. So, do not say Jesus did not teach tithing. Do you understand that? Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, 24. The same scripture attested by Matthew also. Same thing. You should tithe without forgetting the poor. So, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying is hypocrisy. When all the tithing, they always see you there. You have tithing booklets and you know they miss the tithes. But all the poor people around you, you have no care for them. It does not touch you. It does not flinch you. You are not a generous person. You only give for attention. So you see such people. You see them on the road and you think that, and you have to be very, very discerning. And it's actually not hard to spot. And the way that you spot, spot it is that, see, their giving is never consistent. You will notice that all the things that they should honor in their lives, they don't give to all those things. They give to only certain things. That's how you know that such people are not generous people. Church, are we together? Church, are we together? Such people, you will notice that they give towards places where they can gain. Either materially, socially, psychologically. They give towards things where they see themselves gaining from. That's why there's a whole lot of Pharisee giving that is being covered by giving to God. You see such people, they only give towards places or they give when there's a promise of getting a gain. Such people are not giving according to love, like we read in the first type of giving. Some people are giving because of what they want to gain from that place. A whole lot of Pharisee giving. So because giving to the poor does not have any rewards. If you are going to give to the poor, you are giving to the poor because you love them. There is nothing they can do for you. Such people will not give to that kind of place. Such people, they will be giving to people that they see can give them some kind of attention or some social value or social currency by reason of their attention. But people that cannot give them anything that they can gain. They don't give towards them. 
Church all together. This is what the right, this is what Malachi was talking about. Malachi chapter one. This is what Prophet Malachi was talking about from verse six. He says, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? says the Lord Almighty. It's you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ha- ask, How have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. So you see a, a, a society of people, post-exilic Israel, that will go and give their governor their best ram. But when they are going to God, they will look for the ram that they cannot sell in the market. The one that is blind. The one that has spots. Because in their culture, there was a lot of value on, blem- on blemished animals. Do you understand that? There is a lot of value on blemished animals. So the ones that are blemished were considered less valuable. So the things you cannot sell in the market, or the ones that you sell in the market for small money, is the one that you will count your losses and go and sacrifice and say, God, here's my offering. Shebi, you don't cook to eat goats and ram. You sacrifice. Eh? So take my blind goats and the one that has leg like this. But you now want to go and see chairman. You now go with the fat calf. It's a sign of a contempt for God. It shows a lack of honor for God. Church, are together? Praise God. Come on, our church, are we together? So, this is the, these are the reasons why people give. These are the reasons why people give. When you, you know, observe their behavior, when you notice where people give, and it's always easy to spot. It's always easy to spot. Hallelujah. So, I want us to now look at tithing through the Bible. Let's do a cross-sectional analysis, a different context of tithing through the Bible and lay a kind of solid um, knowledge background before we now begin to go forward into more detailed things. Are we together? Genesis chapter 14. The first time we begin to see tithing was in the pre-Sinai era. Abraham and Jacob. So when you say Abraham, when you see Abraham and Jacob doing something, you notice Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you understand that? So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, we see signs that they tithed, that they gave a tenth of their income. Now, from the context that we observe, they did not give that tithing all the time. They gave tithing as uh, in respect to certain events. Do you understand that? Let's look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedolauma and the kings allied with the king of Sodom, came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything so this is the one time that we are aware of that Melchizedek met Abraham and this is the one time that we know that Abraham tithed so when Abraham tithed it was not in response to a mandate 
or a religious obligation. It was a response to the fact that Abraham had met El Shaddai, the God Most High. And he had met another man who, who was a priest of the God Most High. I, did I explain, I explained this last week, have About El Shaddai, right? So, he had met a priest of God Most High, El Shaddai. That means another person who was a priest of the one God, the God of Gods, and the King of Kings. And in response to meeting that priest, Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. So, the first time we see someone giving a tenth, see, I want you to listen to me and forget all this baggage of all these um, petites, more, more petites, it's not good, the argument, just free your mind. I want you to just listen. Just listen. So, Abraham is responding to his in reverence to the priest of the Most High God. He's not doing it as an obligation, as a mandate. It's not that God said you must tithe or anything. No. He's doing it in response. Jacob did something similar. He, and he, he vowed to God and said, God, if you will bring me back peacefully, I will give you a tithe of my earnings. So first of all, from the response, we see that it was not a consistent, continual thing. This, the, the pain of tithe was in response at the time of meeting that man. So it was one of you know, and so, and so on and so forth. Church out together. Do you understand that? So this is when the Hebrew nation could have been said to, to have started. Abraham to Jacob. This is the pre-Sinai period. This is before Moses. Jacob to um, Abraham uh, to Jacob, we see that they gave a tenth in response and in reverence to God. Whenever they meet God or met his priest, they responded by giving a tenth of their things to God. I did a little, a little bit of study to ancient in ancient Near East um, cultures with respect to giving a tenth and discovered that actually a lot of the cultures at that time it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of honor to give a tenth of what you have towards something. Do you understand that? So when Abraham was doing it, Abraham was doing something that it was, it was, it was, a, it was a deep act of reverence for him. That see, a tenth of all the things I have, I will give it to you. I'm not expecting anything. I'm just showing you how much I honor you. Church out together. Now, there's Deuteronomical tithing. So, after Jacob, the children of Jacob went into Israel, like we all know, and then they built a nation, and a nation came out of them. And then God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and took them to Sinai and created a new covenant with them. Are we together? This new covenant that he created with them was had certain injunctions. And the idea of these injunctions, and this is very, very important for you to note at this time, is that the law of Moses was given so that, let me use um, origins, um, hermeneutic, hermeneutic. If you look at the law of Moses, it had spirit, soul, and body. It had spirit, soul, and body. The body is the outward lesson that you can learn by just looking at it. The soul is the um, value lessons that you can learn from it. Church all together. And the spirits are the allegorical lessons, the deep lessons that foreshadow things like Christ in it. 
So that's why you can look at the law of Moses and you can learn some things like history, the context of the Jews, how they behave themselves and all that. That's the body. You can see the soul and learn certain value systems, how you should treat people, how you should treat widows, how you should treat the poor, how you should organize your society. And you can see the spirit that is Christ in it. What this law is foreshadowing ahead about Christ. That is the real substance of it. Apostle Paul's, um, the analogous hermeneutic for Apostle Paul is the letter and the spirit. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. That means that you can look at the law and learn the letter and see just the injunctions for conduct. Or you can look at it as a spirit and see the justification by faith that was coming, that is coming to, you know, in Christ. Hallelujah. Church out together. In the same way also, we begin to look at the law of tithing and what we'll see, we'll see something. We'll see the external lessons, the letter about it that can be learned, and then you see the spirit under it or beneath it that is carrying everything. Hallelujah. This is this thing I just said now. It's something that we really talk about, but it's not today. And it's very, very instructive for people who want to read their Bible and you know, people who, who really want to read, who people who really read their Bible and want to do ministry, because many times people want to people. Let me not go into all that. People want to criticize the law of Moses by taking the letter as the spirit, and they will, you know, you will not discover that everything that we see in the New Testament is the spirit of the old. And so, any man that looked at the law of Moses and looked at everything and saw the spirit of the law, the conclusions they will come to will not be the conclusions of mere letter will come to. For example, let me use the question of, let me use the issue of uh, Old Testament slavery. If you look at the letter, the letter says, if you have a slave, treat them like this. If you have a slave, treat them like this. If, they, if, you, if someone does this to them, you should pay the person back, kiniko, kiniko, and all those kinds of things. So if you look at, if you have a slave, do this. The letter is slavery, is allowed in Israel. And they start shouting, hey, yeah, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, slavery is not good. The Bible that can allow slavery is the Bible. But when you now look at all the laws about slavery and see the spirits, you now begin to see some things. Number one, you cannot kidnap someone and make them a slave. If you kidnap someone and make them a slave, you deserve to die. If a slave runs away from their master's house because they are being maltreated, you cannot return them back. You must free them. Love your neighbor as yourself. When an alien comes into your city from outside, don't enslave them and impoverish them. Treat them like someone that is among you. When you hear all those laws and you are a normally-minded person, what does that tell you? you will, will you read a law, that kind of law, and your conclusion is slavery is good? No. What you will learn, the spirit, is that every man even if the world deals them a bad hand where they become slaves of somebody, your, the spirit of that law is that you must treat everybody equally. What kind of law supports slavery? If you say the law supports slavery, what kind of law supports slavery and tells slaves that if your master is maltreating you, you can run away. You can run into another person's house. And if you run into another person's house, the person must not return you back. You are freed. Is that slavery? Slavery that the way out of the slavery is just to run out of your master's house. <laughs> is that slavery? Of course not. So that means that if someone is in quotes, the slave in your house, you are supposed to treat the person like as if the person is in your house, as if the person is part of you. 
The law will say things like, if you marry your slave, you must treat them like the way you treat your other wives. You say if a master should injure the slave, the master should be injured also. That is not a law that is encouraging slavery. That is a law that is managing a hard-hearted culture that wants to have slavery and wants to show them God's value system. Do you understand that? I feel like that's a, an unnecessary um, detour. Anyway, this is it. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Concerning tithing. These are, let's read um, Deuteronomy chapter 12. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord your God, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dis- dispossessing worship their gods, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah, Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. So Moses begins by telling them that when you get in the land of Canaan, you guys are not going to have small, 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 small altars everywhere. Because once you start having small, small, small altars, the next thing is that you are going back into paganism. You have only one God, the almighty God, Yahweh, the Lord Jehovah. And that God is going to be in a temple in one place. So all those high places, that's why we're going to read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, we're going to hear things like, and Jeroboam did not destroy the high places, and Solomon left the high places, but he chased out the prophets of Baal. Those high places talking about is where people have small, 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 small altars around the city. You can have an altar on this road now. You can have an altar on that road where they used to go and offer sacrifices to idols. And Moses was telling them that you are not allowed to do that. You must have only one central place of worship, which is the temple. Do you understand? Verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek, that's verse 5 now, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There you bring your bonds offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts that you have vowed to give your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice in everything that you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. So, first context of tithing, Deuteronomically, is that you take your tithe and take it, you take your tithe to the temple. You take your tithe to the temple. When you get to the temple, many things happen there. As we go on into the other injunctions on tithing, you'll see the many things that happen. But, just follow. So you're not supposed to take your tithing and put it on small, small altars. This is the context of Deuteronomy. This is after Sinai. Do you understand that? This is a dispensation after Sinai. They are are entering the land of Canaan, and this is the way they were supposed to conduct themselves. Are we together? Now, Deuteronomy chapter 14. All the other names fade away. All the other names fade away. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. Verse 22, chapter 14, verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain and new wine. <laughs> this reminds me of all these silly takes that you always see on Twitter and Facebook where you say, your tithe, you're supposed to be eating your tithes. The Christians don't use to read their Bible. The Bible says that when you have tithes, you should carry it and go and eat it. <laughs> Let's read it together. Verse 23. Eat the tithe of your grain, the new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds, and flocks. 
in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So when you are eating the tithe, where is it? In the temple. Are we together? Now go on, you see. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord your God will choose to put his name is fire away, that means that imagine if the temple is in Ibadan and you are carrying 50 sacks of grain, which is a tent, to Ibadan. How many days do you want you to go to the temple? So he says, which is what you should do, verse 25. Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver and you go to the place of the Lord your God will choose and use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, and other fermented drink or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So instead of taking 10, 20 bags of rice to Ibadan where the temple is, Sell the tail bags of rice for the amount that it goes for, maybe 50,000 naira. And when you get to the temple, use the 50,000 naira to buy something, maybe goats or ram or sheep or maybe rice again, and sacrifice it there. Do you understand that? And now says, do not forget the Levites, because the Levites are the allotment, verse 28. And at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, so that you can understand the picture very well. So this is Israel in Canaan. The temple is in um, the tent. The tent was initially in... Where was the tent initially in? When Samuel was priest. I forgot him. Later on, the temple was built in Jerusalem. The idea is that you're supposed to carry all your things and go there. And then we see three things going on. When you take it to the temple, you feast with it in the presence of God in the temple. One. Are we together? The second thing that it is used for is that it is used for the Levites. Two. Number three is that it is used for the widows and the needy and the aliens and the immigrants in your country. So, the giving is meant to be given to the, to the temple. And so, the priests in the temples are the ones that would decide the allotment for these things. Because the giving of tithe was meant to do two things. It was meant to maintain the cult of worship, and it was meant to take care of the poor and the needy. And so, the priests, the Levites, were the ones that would decide it. So, according to this law, what happens is that every year you always take the, the offering, the tithe, to the temple. But on the third year, where you are, you guys will now gather it around you. And the Levites around you will now share it for the poor. Do you understand that? So the Levites, the priests, the pastors of ancient Israel were the ones that were disbursing the tithe. And so that's what the tithes were used for. They were used for those three things. Feasting. What does feasting mean? What does feasting mean? The Israelites and the Jews of those days, they usually have different kinds of feasts. Passover feast, Kenekon feast, feast of new wine, all those feasts that they used to have. Right? So the feasting was usually done in the temple or during the worship times based on the tenth that was given. Now, the feasting is not just partying and eating. It was worship. These are the rudimentary seeds, the shadows of the Passover and the Eucharist that was coming. The eating was not just we are partying and we are shallowing. No, it was rejoicing and celebrating God together in the temple. Do you understand that? Because when you are eating, you are, you are celebrating, you are celebrating. 
So you are celebrating God in the feasts together in the temple. So it was not just that they are going to eat. It was actually an act of worship. It was an act of worship. It is from the same type that the priests in the temple are also taken care of. Because the priests that will do the work, the administration of the temple, maintaining the temple, uh, maintaining the building, cleaning the building, all the things that they used to do to make sure the temple is always... Because if you see a temple that is standing... Um, um, how do the Bible say it? The soup that is sweet, it is money that kills it. If you see a temple that is standing, it is money that do what? Kill it. The temple or the, the, the tent of worship, whatever it is, depending on dispensation, that was standing, that was being maintained clean, the animals were being sacrificed on, the um, atonement sacrifice was being done and all those things, and you can see the priest is standing and coming every day. The priest that is standing and coming every day is not eating air, he's not eating the power of God. He's something that is carrying him, and the thing that is carrying him is the tenth of all of Israel and the Levites, and that, that you know that was shared among the Levites, church all together. Do you understand that? Do you understand that picture? So it's not like as if the tithe that were given in ancient Israel was for people to go up there and be eating. No. When you carry your tithe and you go for a feast, like there's something happening in the temple, and you go there a certain feast day, and you give your tithe, it's from that tithe that you feast. It does not mean that you'll be eating your tithe every day. Do you understand the context now? It is for the feast in the temple. So you feast together and go back home. All the things, because you cannot finish all your tithes in feasting. It's not possible. So all the... You know what all the things that is left is for the Levites to administer accordingly. Are you getting this context? So that you don't copy and paste what does not make sense. Deuteronomy chapter 26. When you have, verse 1 says, when you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord is giving you, and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, and say to the priest, church, this is one thing that you should learn. First fruits is tight. Do you understand? First fruit is tight. Before we continue, let's, let's, before we continue, let's go to Leviticus 27. Leviticus 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belong to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever will redeem any of that tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rock, rod will be what? Holy to the Lord. No one may pick out what is good or bad to make substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and the substituted become holy and cannot be what? Redeemed. This is the same teaching in Exodus 21 concerning children that are firstborn. When it says something is holy unto the Lord, a tithe is holy unto the Lord, it is the first fruit. That is, first fruit means separated unto God, holy unto God. Church, do you understand that? So when people talk about first fruit, first fruit does not mean your first salary. First fruit means your tithe. So every income you have, there's a first fruit from it. The first fruit is the first thing. 
You know, when we think of tight, we think of tight as the last thing. You plan what you want and what is left. No. Tight, if you are doing tight well, you understand. Like, when my wife and I have a doing budget, tight is the first thing. It's the first thing you first take out. What is left, you now plan with. Do you understand that? So that's why it is the first fruit. Your first fruit is your tithe. It is not your first salary. There is no place in the scriptures where it says all your harvests. How, how do you even describe first fruits? Is it the first harvest you ever have when you become a young man? Or the first harvest you have every year? What about crops that is only one harvest per year? Do you understand that? <laughs> do you understand that? So first fruit is not your first income. No. First fruit is the firstborn of your income. That is your first thing. Let's go back. Deuteronomy chapter 26. Oh, sorry. Hallelujah. Let me read it again from the beginning. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving us an inheritance and take a position of it and settle in it, take some of the first fruits. The first fruits of all that you have. See, of all that your produce from the soil of the land that your God is giving you and put them in a basket. So, how can all your first fruits, all the land, all your produce for the year, enter a basket? Of course not. That's why it says, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land. So, you take a first fruit of your produce. Do you understand that? Your first fruit of your produce is a tenth of your produce. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in the, in the office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Do you see that? They say you should give tithe. And as you are giving tithe, you should be remembering all that the Lord has done for you. Let's go on. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God, our ancestors. And the Lord heard us and saw our misery, our toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great terror with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the fresh fruits of that soil that you, the Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God will bring to you and your household. Do you see that? So, first thing here. He's saying that the tithe is supposed to be a manifestation of your appreciation of the fact that all the land that you have from where you drug, you know, where you got the fruits and gave the first fruits is by reason of the goodness of God to you. So you are giving because God gave. Did you hear what I said now? You are giving your first fruits, you are giving your tithe because God delivered you and gave you the land of Canaan. You are not giving God so that he can give you Canaan. You are giving to the Lord because he had given you Canaan. Do you understand this? Hold this thing in your left hand. I'm coming back to it. Hold it in your left hand. I'm coming back to it. See what Jesus, God is telling the Israelites. When you are giving a tithe, 
Use it to appreciate the fact that I gave you the land and you are responding to that appreciation by giving a tenth and a first fruit towards me. So you are giving first fruits after God had given you Canaan. Not because so that God can give you Canaan. He gave you Canaan when you were slaves. How can he now be giving you Canaan because you gave him tithes? Hold it in your hand. I'm coming back to it. Verse 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth. Do you see that? Guys, do you see that? Verse 12. When you have finished setting aside a what? Tenth. So first fruit is what? Tenth. Of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that you may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion, and I have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you command. I have turned not aside from your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean. Nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the, um, and the land you have given us as you promised an oath to your ancestors, a land flowing with milk and what? Honey. Hallelujah. Church, out together. So it says after giving a tenth, after giving your first fruits, what you do is that you respond and appreciate God. You now see it, you tell God that, see God, I have not eaten the tithe you asked me to eat, and you asked me to give. Instead, I have given it. Now, there's something very, very important for you to understand about Deuteronomical giving, which is important. Praise God. Time is almost gone. I've not even reached halfway. Church, now listen to me. He says, two things I want you guys to note here, that when they are giving, two things are happening the, the soul and the spirit, letter and the spirit. Two things happened here. In one angle, he's telling them that when they are giving, they should use it to appreciate the fact that God had given them the land before. Then the second part, he now says, when they are giving it, they should give it and pray that God will bless the land with milk and um, their land of what? Milk and honey. So, the law of Moses was a commandment to them. And this commandment had judgment for not fulfilling it. That's what Malachi was echoing in Malachi chapter 3. God has told them to give a tithe. And in not giving the tithe, there was a corresponding judgment that they deserved for breaking the commandment. Church out together. So there was the law. Give your tithe so that you can be blessed. But there was a spirit. Give your tithe because I blessed you. Do you understand what I just said to you now? Under the law, the law was given. I always tell you guys, it's good if I spell the end here. We have all, all our lives. I always tell you guys that the law was a heuristic. It was something that was meant to point the Israelites towards an end. It was meant to teach these hard-hearted people something that is coming. How do you teach a child that does not know something, a, a, an important value system, before they come? What you do is that you come as a tutor. Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. You come as a tutor. And so while the child is an heir to all the property, 
He is treated like a slave while he's under a tutor. But one faith has come. He's now what? Free. So the law was a tutor. And what does a tutor do? A tutor shows you what you should do. But when you don't do it, they'll flog you. By flogging you when you're not doing what you should do. Because you're a child, you don't even know your right from your left. You don't even know what is good and what is evil. So the tutor first has to teach you what is good and what is evil. Bef while they are trying to explain to you the reason why you should follow good. Because it is one thing for a person to show you what good and evil is. It's another thing for you to give someone the reason to do good. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said to you? You can tell someone, stealing is not good. That is, you have told them. Why should I not steal is a different question. Stealing is not good. Why should I not steal? There are two different issues. Stealing is not good. It's something that the tutor will teach you. Why should I not steal? It's something that the spirit and the son understands. So, when you see the law, you always see this continually. The law, the letter, and the spirit. So, under the law, under the law, there was an obligation to pay tithes because the Lord commanded it. But even under the obligation, the prophets were already showing them the real reason why they should give a tithe. And they should give it as a response. So, what you'll find is that any Jew that reads this scripture and the spirit of God breathes on his heart and he understands this scripture, what he will find is that when he's going to give tithe, he's not just giving tithe because God said he should give it. He would also be giving it in appreciation of what God did for him. So do you understand that? New Testament, the post-exilic phase. Now, after the Assyrians packed the northern kingdom of Israel after their civil war. The northern, Israel had a civil war sometimes in the um, 8th, 9th century before Christ. They split into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was the ten tribes. The southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom, the Assyrians came and packed them. Packed them first, then packed them over time. I think after like 50, 70 years, packed them, finished, dispersed them throughout the land and there's no more thing those ten tribes are no more to be. They have mixed with everybody in the Mediterranean. Do you understand that? Even before the Assyrians captured them, they were already beginning to behave like unbelievers. They were already pagans. They were still worshipping other gods and all those kinds of things. So they were already even lost. After Jeroboam carried them and went, they just became like as if they were not Jews anymore. But Judah was still worshipping God. Then Babylon came and took Judah. After 70 years, they came back. Judah is where the temple was. Do you understand? That's Jerusalem. When they came back, things, that's where things began to change. One of the things that began to change is that after spending so long in exile, when you are in exile, there's no temple there, but Jews need to be meeting somewhere, isn't it? So when Jews are meeting, they began to create the idea of synagogues. So the idea of synagogue in post-exilic Israel is not, was not the same as Israel of antiquity. There were no synagogues in Israel of Canaan before the exile. Because everybody was meant to go to the temple. It was after the exile that Jews now began to come up with the idea of synagogue, church. That's where we now followed and took the idea of church from. Where they'll be meeting to worship, to read the scriptures, and all those kinds of things. Originally, there were no temples there. 
So the structure of the society had begun to change. So when they came back from post-exilic Israel, Ezra and Nehemiah began to lay the, front, the, the foreground work for building the temple, and they built the temple with, I think, I think over 40 years or something, to build the temple back. But even when they built it back, it was not like the initial plan that, you know, that he had, that's, that it looked like when Solomon built it, church all together. So what you now find in post-exilic Israel, just like we read that what Jesus happened was that there were many ways that people were giving. They were still tithing. So the Jewish Christians, the initial Jewish Christians, if you read church history also, you'll find that they were also still giving their tithe. Do you understand that? But this time, when they were giving their tithe, they were not giving their tithe because Moses said so. They, are, they were not giving their tithe because the church needed it. And in fact, not only were they giving tithe, they were more than giving tithe to the point where they were selling their properties for the sake of the church. Do you understand that? If you check um, New Testament after Jesus then died and rose again, you'll find that the apostles and the, the, the Jews, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, were still going to the temple. When Paul was on his way to Rome before they imprisoned him in Jerusalem, he was still going to the temple and still doing some ablution. So what happened to the Jewish Christians was that they had now believed Jesus, but they were still doing some things of the law as there was a kind of a brief period of identity crisis whereby some of them that because they were Jews could not say they would stop doing all the Jewish things overnight. Do you understand that? Imagine we embrace the Jew, you are going to the temple. You not say, I'm going to stop doing all the Jewish things overnight because Jesus has died and rose again. So they were still doing those Jewish things while, you know, walking in faith. So you see John and Peter and John going to the temple. You see Paul going to the temple. You see all those things still happening. You see them still doing ablution before eating. Like Peter when he went to Antioch. You see them washing their hands before eating. All those Jewish practices, they were still doing them even though they were now in Christ. There were some people that because they were doing them, it was entering their head and they were saying that even the Gentile Christians should be doing those things also. And that's what Paul fought till he died. That is a lie. You, you are doing it because you are a Jew. But you cannot make it a law for us to do it because that error is gone. Do you understand that? It's extremely important for you to understand this difference and this context. When the Jews were still, when the Jewish Christians were still doing those things, they were not doing it, or at least Peter was not doing it, because I know there were some that were still doing it as a way to fulfill the law. But what Jesus was now teaching, because even before Jesus died, even before he died and rose again, he was already beginning to clear them. What are you washing hands for? Washing hands is not the problem. It's inside that's the problem. Don't go out on Sabbath, Baba. The Sabbath was created for the man, not man for the Sabbath. We eat on Sabbath. Those things that under the law, they're supposed to kill you for. Jesus was already doing them before he died. So even before Jesus died, he addressed that clearing them that the law is not guiding what people do. It's the spirits that guides what people do. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So, so you might have seen some Jewish Christians still doing some of those things. But the ones that were doing it following what Jesus had taught and what the apostles were teaching were doing it based on culture, not based on the requirements of Christianity. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? However, because that system of giving to God is very valuable, it has been happening for 3,000 years, and is a good system for teaching honor, Paul taught the Gentiles a similar method for them to give. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. 
on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will be what? Made. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? Keep a, of course, keep a portion of your income on the first day of every week. It is the first fruit. The first portion. Set aside. That's what I always tell people. If the word tithe offends your sensibility, call it set aside. But this is the point. Apostle Paul taught the Gentile Christians the principle of setting aside your first fruits for the sake of the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying to you now? What does that tell you? That means that across all the dispensations, from Abraham to the Deuteronomical times, to the post-exilic times, to the post-resurrection times, there is an underlying principle that is cross-cultural. What is that principle? Setting aside a portion of your income in response to God. Church, I will together. Cross-culturally, across all the dispensations, one thing is consistent. People that honor God, people that honor the temple, the temple image, it changes. For Abraham, it was Melchizedek. In Deuteronomy, it was the tent. In um, post-exilic times, it was the temple. In Jesus' time, it is the, the believer. Hallelujah. Cross-culturally, people that honor God or his temple, they always set aside the first part, the first fruits, set aside a tenth of all their income for the sake of what they honor. Guess what? Out of the four dispensations, two of them, it was a law that came with punishment if you didn't fulfill it. In two, it was not a law that came with punishment. So it's 50-50. So a person cannot be quoting Malachi for Abraham. Do you hear that? <laughs> you did not hear that I said that. Imagine someone quoting Malachi for Abraham. In the same way, you can't be quoting Malachi after Jesus has died. That, that is the reason why a devourer is coming to you. That God will punish you for not paying, giving it, paying a tithe. No. Believers in this dispensation, they give a tithe. They don't pay a tithe. You know what I said now? Believers give a tithe. They don't pay a tithe. Hallelujah. Believers give a tithe. They don't pay a tithe. Hallelujah. Church, are we together? I'm trying to gauge, you no, know, the time is gone. I can't, let me not start here. Let me not start here. So across all the times, if you love God, if you love his work, if you love his things, it is incumbent on you at every of those periods to set aside a portion of your income that will be the first part that will go towards what you love. Church out together. There was a time when it was not a law. Then there was a time when it was a law. Then there was a time when it was not a law. 
all those things are irrelevant. It is an error to get people to set aside a portion of their income, threatening them with judgment. We are no longer under a tutor. The tutor was given at a time to point us towards something. What he is pointing us towards, we have seen it now. So it does not apply. When I was young, my mom would tell the nanny to spank me for not doing something. Now, my mom cannot send the nanny to spank me for not doing something. Do you understand that? When I was under the elements of the world, a tutor was sent to spank me for not paying a tithe. Now, I give a tithe. I am no longer under a tutor. Church, I get what I'm saying. Church, I get what I'm saying. So, giving of tithe is... Is, is scriptural. You can't, there's no way. Setting aside your income, now it does not have to be a tenth. The tenth was based on the foundations of, you know, from Abraham and all that, right? But what we even see for the believers is that the way the need was created, ah, there's some historical context I will go into next week. When I'll start from here next week and I'll go into the historical context of this, this drive that Apostle Paul did to raise money and how the famine from 45 AD to about 57, 58 AD you know, cost all the problems and how they have to start raising money and everything. See, for the believers, for people that love God, setting aside a portion of your income to give is non-negotiable. There is no man that honors God that does not set aside a portion of income to give. Because I get what I'm saying. So if the statement, if the word tithe is offending you, if you don't like the word tithe, name it something else. Name it set aside. Name it first fruit of my produce. Name it first day of the week. Name it anything you like. What matters is the spirit. And what is the spirit? You ought to set aside. Thank God this is the middle of the month. They've not paid any of you salary, Abby. So you cannot say I'm targeting your salary to preach this. By the time it's two weeks time, those of you don't to forget the message you have forgotten. So you cannot accuse me of, of, of harassing you. It will give it. Hallelujah. Praise God. Church, are you with me? Church, are you with me? Try to explain giving so you can understand it properly. I, so you will soon see people, it will come. It's every Sunday. They used to drag Christians. You will soon see another post now. Christians are always creating tithe. The Bible says that your tithe should be for you to eat. You see? You see, it's nonsense. <laughs> Praise God. There is no mention of tithe in the New Testament. Who said so? What's the meaning of that? All those kinds of things that we will see. Praise God. So, we will continue from here next Sunday. And um, next Sunday, we'll, start, we'll continue from here. And then I'll we'll go into who giving is true. The church, the poor, both of them, or in what proportion. We'll talk about everything next week Sunday. Hallelujah. I've been blessed. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.